of his departure to the Father. The hour that he will go back to glory with the Father. It was the hour of suffering as most well hour of coming back in glory. And he mentioned because he's departing to leave the disciples in the world, it's mentioned here they he loved his own and he loved them to the end. And I think Greg him he commented about to the end, saying this is the end has no end. So this is to for eternity. And actually this is like what mentioned in chapter one in this gospel, that in the beginning was the world. The beginning has no beginning, and here is the end has no end. So when it was the Sabbath and the Lord get out of the Sabbath and to wash the disciples' feet. And this is the Sabbath as we know all, this is the Sabbath of the past of the Passover, not the Lord's Sabbath. Because the Lord's Sabbath is not mentioned here. It's the Sabbath of the Passover. And here we see the feet washing. And the feet washing has a very great significant spiritual significance. We need to learn it. We learn it from what the Lord replied to Simon to Peter. When he wants to wash the feet, Peter's feet, Peter, he objected first. He refused. And he said, how come the Lord of glory to bend over and to wash my feet? I think he said this in himself. So he said, no, you will not wash my feet. He said to him, you, don't, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. What does it mean after this? Some people, they say, to learn the lesson of humility and humbleness, but this does not need any more days for Peter to learn this. So definitely the humility and humbleness of the Lord Jesus is more beyond than that. We read this in Philippians chapter 2. But this is not for this reason. Even if we do this service in humility and humbleness, but this is not for this, uh, to learn this lesson now. So so he, when he says this to Peter, Peter says, no, you will not wash my feet at all. So what the Lord replied to him, he said, if I do not wash you, you, you have no part with me. So I think Peter, he didn't understand what's meant by part with me. Because part with me is different than part in me. Because part in me, that we have a part in Christ by the new birth. But part with him, to have a fellowship with him if this fellowship is interrupted. So Peter, he replied, okay, if this is the case, so wash my hands and my head. But the Lord replied to him, he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. So what does it mean, these things? Now, bathing here, we read about it first in Chapter two here, uh, chapter two in this gospel, when he, he, the Lord spoke to Nicodemus, says, unless one is born of water and the spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we read about it in uh, Titus chapter three, the washing the, of regeneration. This means the new birth. The one who has a new birth is once for all. No need to be repeated, but he needs for uh, feet washing, to wash his feet only. So this is what the Lord meant by the one who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But he said some things very important, but he is completely clean, 
but you are clean, but not all of you. Because the Lord knew that Judas' style was with them. He is not clean. He is not bad. Even if he, the washing his feet doesn't make any difference with him, because he's not bad. So this is what is, and so what is meaning about the feet washing here now? The, some people that said, yeah, this Peter, he understood this after he denied the Lord. Actually, it's not completely right, because he denied the Lord, he committed sin. So he doesn't need feet washing, he needs forgiveness. So completely different service. service. He needs advocacy, does, he doesn't need feet washing, refreshment. So when he sent, he, he said he went out and wept, wept bitterly. This means he repented, and I think at that time his sin was forgiven. So, and some they said he understood this at the at the uh, Sea of Tiberias, when the Lord restored him. It could be a part of it, but actually the Lord restored him from different issues. He even didn't mention his denial. He actually, he wants to restore his soul completely and to let him know not to have his self-confidence. Because Peter will have a very, he was confident in himself. He knew that he's the one loves the Lord by his action, but all these things. And he said, I will do anything for you. I will die with you and so on. So he was, he felt, he thought he's the one loves the Lord more than the other. So the Lord dealt with him with this issue and he restored him completely. And more of that, he gave him a great mission, great commission to him. So he entrusted him on his sheep to feed and to, uh, to tend up his, his sheep. So this is all the completely different things. Uh, uh, altogether. So what is meant by feet washing? Feet washing is to ref refresh each other with the uh, ministering of Christ to each other. So this is the the feet washing. Some feet washing our souls in this world uh, can get uh, get dull and our affections being, being chilled. So in this case, we may lose the fellowship with the Lord, so we need to be refreshed, we need to go back to fellowship with the Lord. This is the meaning of this uh, uh, feet washing. It's completely different from the other services. The advocacy, advocacy service deals with our sins. When we sin, we have advocate. Our weaknesses, our, our affirmatives have different services. The high priest, high priest in heaven, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, but this is a completely different one with our when our souls get get uh, get uh, get done uh, uh, done, or our affections get chilled, so we need to be refreshed. This happens from working in this world, occupied with the things of, uh, with the with the, with work, with home, with everything, can make us to be uh, to be dumb in soul. So that we need refreshment, and this refreshment by the word of God, because the the Lord He used the water for this service, and the water. It, uh, it, it refers to the word of God. So, some they said, but the Lord, he gave an example, and he said, this, I do this example for you, I'm the teacher, and I'm the Lord, I done this for you, do this for each other. This is maybe sort of humility and humbleness, but actually, is it, we do this service in humility and humbleness, yes, but this does not mean that. This means the Lord has done it to refresh his, 
disciples and to, to receive them. So we received this from the Lord. The Lord has been doing this service for us now by refreshing us, our souls, by his word. And we need to do to, to each other by refreshing our souls, but ministering to each other and do with different other other ways. And it's not this service is not restricted to some people only, but even the sisters can do it. And I think Greg mentioned last time examples for that. The lovely widow that uh, washing the uh, saints' feet in Timothy, uh, 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 I think First Timothy chapter five, and in Second Timothy chapter one, he mentioned also the uh, man he is named Onesiphorus. That uh, the uh, uh, Apostle Paul he says he often refreshed me. So anyone can do this service. And actually, we ought to do it. It's a responsibility. The Lord says you ought to wash one another the feet. So the service is our responsibility to wash the feet of our other, of each other, and it's our privilege as well. When we wash the feet of somebody, we refresh him. And as, at the same time, we get the joy in our hearts with doing this service. And this service, we need to know this is not a correction. It's not to deal with the sin of somebody else. It's completely different. It's to refresh each other from our uh, dullness in souls or chilling in the affections. And this is what we have discussed last time, and we turn now to uh, verse 18. I think it's um, important what um, Brother Tadros has uh, pointed out to us in summarizing what we spoke about feet washing not to do with dealing with uh, sin um, because the Lord was so gracious um, and he washed the feet of Judas. Um, Judas was there in the room with them. The Lord knew that they were not all clean, but he still washed Judas' feet. Um, he still was so um, caring, so loving um, to do this ministry of refreshment, um, even towards Judas, um, one who he considered as a friend, um, one who he gave every opportunity to, one who um, he didn't um, exclude in any way, um, one who he offered everything that was offered to any of the other disciples. Um, but Judas was not one of his. He was the son of perdition. Um, and there's no dealing of the Lord Jesus with him as with the other disciples when it comes to new birth or sin. Um, and therefore, because the Lord Jesus washed Judas' feet, um, we can also use that um, in support of um, the fact that feet washing has not to do with defilement of sin. Feet washing has to do with refreshment of our souls, as Brother Tadros has mentioned. In John's Gospel, the supper isn't instituted and there's a lot of people that think that Judas was there while the Lord instituted the supper. Um, where would that slot in in this chapter? Straight after verse 30, I would think. Um, Judas leaves the room. Then the 
the Lord's Supper is instituted. Yeah, it certainly says some um, having therefore received the morsel and the Lord spoke in verse 26 about dipping a morsel. We know that dipping morsels has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper but seems to have had something to do with the Passover. So immediately after this act connected with the Passover, Judas went out and we know that after the completion of the Passover feast, the Lord then instituted the Lord's Supper. So I think we can establish fairly clearly from John's Gospel that Judas was not present at the Lord's Supper. And also from Matthew's Gospel, we find this very clear as well. After the Supper, the Passover has instituted, and he gave Judas this, uh, the uh, the morsel, he, after that, he instituted the Lord's Supper to them. This means in between these two, it was Judas left because he said in John's Gospel, after, immediately after he took, he took it, he left. So after he, he gave him this one, after that he instituted the Supper. It's very clear in Matthew's Gospel. clear in Luke too, isn't it, really? But just the point that from here on, from verse 30, it was a time for him and his own, wasn't it, really? Well, in Luke's gospel, it's not chronological order. That's why it's not very clear in Luke's, Luke's gospel. But it's clear in Matthew's gospel and uh, 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 clear in, in John's gospel, it's chronological order. So, it's, uh, sorry, it's uh, Luke's gospel, yeah, it's, uh, it's not chronological order. It's also in Mark's gospel as well, and the same as Matthew, and if we look at Matthew, Mark, and then line it with John, it's very clear. Some, the way that Luke writes is often described as being in a moral order. And when, when we use the word moral order, that means um, an order of things that affects the soul or affects the state of soul or the response of one's soul. The word moral is connected with the soul. And so um the the structure of things in luke really is showing to us the effect upon the lord's soul of having somebody like judas present and it, it seems that here in john's gospel um the the word is used in verse 18 he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me you get a uh, like a, a, a crossover point where John's line crosses over with Luke's line. John is introducing here the moral effect upon the Lord, what it was to him. Now, he, he didn't say, um, he whose feet I have washed lifts up his heel against me. Now that, but he says, he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. What a cause of suffering that was to the Lord Jesus, to have one who was in his heart so really bitterly opposed to the Lord Jesus. 
how that affected him in, in, sorrowfully in his heart. I think one of the Psalms says, if it had been an enemy, I could have borne it. But it was thou, mine own familiar friend. What, what, a, what a sorrowful thing um, for the Lord Jesus to have to endure. And the Lord, when he referred to Psalm 41, he didn't mention the fairest of the verse. He said, uh, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. He didn't say that because he, he didn't trust Judas. Because he's not his familiar friend, but he tried to many times to stop him from doing this terrible sin. So he, he didn't mention this. He said, the one he ate bread with me, he left it with him. I'd just like to give the, um, the passages, the paragraphs out of the Bible. First, from Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Yeah, mine, mine own familiar friend, in whom I confided, who did eat of my bread that lifted me up, is healed against me. And I think the other... Um, quotation was from Psalm 55, verse 13, it says, But it was thou, a man, mine equal, mine intimate, my familiar friend. Just to mention those scriptures. Just another one in, in the Psalms as well. Um, Psalm 35, in verse 14. It says, I behaved myself as though he had been a friend, a brother to him. I bowed down in sadness as one that mourneth for a mother. It was, must have been something that really did grieve the heart of the Lord. Um, it wasn't like, oh, the Lord knew he was going to deliver him up, so he, he was always sort of estranged from him. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, the Lord really did care for him, and um, it really affected him deeply, what Judas had done. The Lord said, the Lord said, my soul, here, my soul being uh, troubled. And actually, the Lord said this where in three consecutive chapters, chapter 11, when he saw that Mary weeping, he said, chapter 11, verse 33, and the Lord saw her weeping, the Lord troubled in spirit. And in chapter 12, verse 27, when that hour or that cup of enduring the cross came before him, he said, my soul being troubled. And the third time here in chapter 13, when the Lord saw that one of his people, one very close to him, will deliver him, he said the third time, my soul being troubled. It's remarkable that with such deep emotions, pressing upon the Lord Jesus in his soul, that still in verse 19, um, he 
has the presence of mind and the desire of heart to provide clear instruction to his disciples, giving yet another example proving that he was the promised Messiah, more than the promised Messiah. Look at the wording in verse 19. And um, if you have a literal translation, you'll notice that there's one word in italics or in brackets. The Lord says, I tell you now before it happens, that when it happens, you may believe that I am. I am. The existence of Judas at the table with him, causing him such grief, was in order that the other disciples might realize in their souls the truth, the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus, that he is the eternal God. I am. If we can just follow on just a little bit from that point that Brother Greg has brought out. He is the I am. He is God. He is the eternal God. And without wanting to jump right into it, but into verse 27, he actually gives Judas and Satan the permission to do the things they do. They cannot, the powers of darkness cannot do anything without the, shall we say, the permission or the allowance by God to let them do it. They are still under his control. Verse 20 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I'm wondering why did the Lord say this to them in this situation? Because in these circumstances, the uh, the disciples will get troubled. The disciples may say, what will happen in the future? The commission that he needed, he wants to assure them that their commission will go on. No matter what happens, no matter he is betrayed by one of them, but their commission will go on. He will, receive, he will send them, and who receives them, he will receive him, and who will receive him, receives the one who has sent them. This is most assure, uh, assuring to his disciples. So everything will go as usual, no matter what happens. What a reassurance to the other disciples. Um, the fact that... Um, The Lord had told them this before it happened, so that when it happened, that they might believe that he was God. He was truly who, um, the the sent one of God. Um, He knew what Judas was going to do. And imagine he hadn't told them. Um, Imagine what their hearts were thinking. You know, when the Lord had said to them, and it's recorded in other Gospels also, one of you will deliver me up. Each one of them said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Um, they would have had this distress in soul. Um, But um, the Lord tells them what Judas is going to do before it happens. And then he reassures them with this verse that Brother Tadros has just shared with us in verse 20. He who receives me receives him who has sent me. Um, These ones who are clean, these ones who are bathed, these ones who are born again, um, 
there is no risk of them going into perdition like um, Judas. There is, they are safe. They have received him and they've received the one who has sent him. Um, the Lord made it clear that this one Judas was going to do what he was going to do before it happened to reassure their hearts so that they would know um, um, he knew from the beginning the one who was going to betray him and that there's complete assurance to the, the work of God in our souls, the work of the Spirit and the Word of God in new birth. Um, and then eventually when the Holy Spirit came in, um, in the sealing of the Spirit, I believe. There's quite a stark difference between Eve's me and someone who delivers me up. Um, I'd hate to use a, uh, not a great picture, but if anyone's heard of re-gifting, uh, um, you get a present from someone and you don't really like the present, you wrap it and give it to someone else later. That would be um, like delivering it up. Someone who really receives something takes it as theirs and part of them. Um, and him who sent him. It's a show. There's nothing worse than the person who gave you the present being present when you re-gift their present. Um, it doesn't show that you received that person, that you've really cared for that person. Now, these people had a, a really deep appreciation of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's mentioned that uh, now there was a now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That was someone who received Jesus. That was someone who received the one who sent him. Uh, that was someone who had the Lord Jesus and his affections, but knew all the while what he was to his Lord. And um, someone who delivered him up never had any of those things. I'd like to um, apply that verse to the first 17 verses. And uh, just, just an application, right? It's, uh, I want to emphasize this one, if someone comes and wants to wash your feet, receive him as from the Lord. Maybe that's an application just in this case. Not to refuse that what the Lord has sent you. Um, there, there was a brother who wanted to go to another one to encourage him and to, to speak to him and to refresh him and to wash maybe in this sense his feet. But the other one said, no, no, I don't need it. I don't want it. But somehow the Lord passed their ways together. Um, and afterwards, this brother had to admit that it was needed to be refreshed. So just as an application, don't refuse that, but the Lord sends you. Just accept it as from the Lord. I, we, we, you probably saw it. It's just to refresh, to encourage, to 
to give a positive result for your heart. It's not to, uh, as we maybe said, wash your head or whatever. So just to to encourage, and this is needed, what we all need from the Lord. And in this sense, let us take this verse as well, just an application, right? To to see whatever, whoever I shall send, receive me. So that's good. So let's encourage to not to refuse a visit of a brother or a sister, as we have heard, but to accept it as from the Lord, to get the refreshment the Lord wants us to have. And when the Lord said to them, I say to you, one of you will be- betray me. It was the impaction on the souls of the disciples. And uh, they couldn't talk. And they looked at one another. And even no one was there to ask the Lord, who is this one? Even Peter, the one who had the self-confidence, he couldn't even dare to ask the Lord. He asked it. John, and the, the uh, word said here, the one the Lord loves. He asked John, and John asked the Lord. But why he said the one the Lord loves? Does the Lord love John more than the others? Of course not. He loved everyone the same love. He loved them to the end, all of them. But I think John was appreciating and was conscious about the Lord's love. And he's the one appreciated what the Lord has done for him, feet washing as well. And uh, and uh, after that, he was leaning on his uh, bosom. So this is the one he appreciated Lord's love, and he was very conscious about the Lord's love to him. That's why he said the one the Lord loves. Can't help but think, Avilio, but I think it was you, Greg, saying now what the Lord was going through in his mind, knowing about this betrayal, and yet he could give these directions to his disciples of how they were to treat each other and instructions, really, for mankind to follow. And it wasn't only just an instruction, but he had over his head that he was to be betrayed as we've discussed, by not by an enemy, but by one of his own. But then also that one of his own would deny him. Would deny him. So there was two things really, when you think of it, our, our Lord would be so composed and give these directions with this over his head. It's almost as though in these three disciples we get some some strong lessons. There's, there's Judas, one who we might say for whom love is absent. There's no love for the Lord. And then there's John who appreciates the love of the Lord Jesus for him. And there's a response from that is that John leans in the bosom of the Lord Jesus. And then there's Peter, who appreciates his own love for the Lord Jesus and thinks perhaps more highly of it than he ought to think. And in those three cases, we see love in three different ways. Absent, appreciated, and um, I guess um, introspective kind of 
thinking of, well, yeah, I love the Lord and that's what counts. We, we have to be careful in how much we proclaim that we love the Lord. But we don't have to be too careful about valuing his love for us. Wonderful thing. Also, another lesson here, maybe, if we look to the case of Judith, um, the fall is not uh, in one go or one step, but it took uh, more than one step. Um, in chapter 12, we read about him that he was safe, 12 and verse 6. And here we see that there is an evil not being dealt with. And the heart is now a ground for Satan when we read in verse in chapter 13 and verse 2, in the middle of verse 2, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas and now it is a second step now. The heart is prepared and the devil put in his, in his heart. And in verse 27, and after the morsel, then enters Satan into him, showing that Satan is taking control of him. And maybe someone saying this is only for a sinner, but also it's still, it is something for each one of us to be careful. If there is any evil, not judge, and the heart not head to the way of the Lord. He may be um, an earth willing to receive some from Satan on the heart. And as we read that, it will be uh, bring more serious consequences. It is a lesson for everyone from the start when we read even the fall of Adam. It is take a step by step. And if not we be careful with the first step, it will be dangerous. Following on from that, Camille, the character of Judas was he loved money. See, he was a thief. He was looking to, to sell the ointment, not for the poor, but for himself. And then when he was negotiating with the Jews over the betrayal of Jesus, he negotiated money. And Paul writes in Timothy, it's the love of money, which is the root of every evil. And what a thing it is to see that even amongst brothers and sisters, there can be those that get taken in the snare of loving money. And Judas is a very graphic and a very sad, but very clear example of the consequences of the love of money. Yeah. Sure. The Lord, he knows Judas from the start. 
he is the one who's going to betray him and he is he was uh, he was a, a thief you know that but he never exposed him before this is the only time he exposed him in this part at the end exposed him never exposed him before that but even he sent him with his disciples to uh, he, sent the, he sent him with them he washed his feet he tried with him too many times even he didn't rebuke him any time he wants to bring him back and to not to commit this sin but this is the only time he exposed him to the disciples even when the uh, previous chapter when uh, the word of god revealed to us he was a, a thief the, the lord didn't expose him to the disciples here he started to expose him and he, when he started to expose him it was even bit covered it's not plain but when the disciples didn't understand fully what the lord uh, saying he start to say plainly and he says he start to say the one of you will betray me and he pointed to him was giving him the piece of bread and so on and this is the only time the lord wanted to to to, to stop him the lord wanted to uh, give bring him back but he he did it that's why like uh, donald mentioned the lord he said to me what you do do quickly why does the Lord say that? Do quickly. Go and do it. Because he is this sight, sight and has come in him. So there is no way to, to stop doing this. No way. He is he hardened himself. He is his lust was there and he wanted to do this uh, uh, this terrible sin. So the Lord asked him do it quickly because the time the the hour is at hand. So the Lord asked him and yeah. This is, as Donald said to us, he has to have a permission from the Lord to do it. Um, Satan here is back for the first time since the Lord um, met him in the wilderness. In his, there were the effects of Satan, there were unclean there were demons, there was all sorts of things, but this is the first time that Satan really makes a full appearance since the wilderness in um, Luke chapter 4. But it's interesting because whatever Satan does, I've, um, he's a slave to the purposes of God. Um, not to the will of God, but to the purposes of God, that God has a thing that is working out. And regardless of how Satan acts or what he does, it's always to work things out for, for God. Um, I was wondering in verse 20, now for a quick question, in verse 20 it says that he was troubled in spirit and testified. Does testified refer to verse 19 that um, was he referring to the fact that they might believe that I am he that he was showing her I think that's a good suggestion Dave that's um, very helpful Peter in that amazing 
sermon, I suppose we called it, on the first day of Christianity, on the day of Pentecost. He, he says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man born witness to by God to you by works of power and wonders and signs which God wrought by him in your midst, as you yourselves know him, given up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, by the hand of lawless men, have crucified and slain. And the Lord knew this. I was just looking back a little bit earlier in Matthew 16. From that time, Matthew 16 and verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go away to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be be raised. And as Tadros said earlier, it doesn't say in here anywhere that Judas was going to be involved in that, although it was, but the determinant counsels of God are being worked out here. And we are treading on very, very holy ground as we work through these verses. We come to some very holy ones in a few moments, Lord willing. But we are looking here sometimes at a mystery. How can we understand that Jesus tells Judas to go quickly and do it? He's the one who, a little bit later, he could say he could call on how many legions of angels? I'm not sure exactly how many are in there. But 12 legions of angels. He, he, he had the power not to go there. But here we are looking at something which was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What you do, do quickly the determinant counsels and foreknowledge of God, wicked hands have crucified and slain the Lord Jesus. It's very holy ground. And uh, in some ways it's a mystery, but we take the scripture as it's written and we just appreciate that God and his purposes is working out something which is truly great. And I think we'll get, when we get into verse 31, we'll start to understand a wee bit more about how holy this ground is that we are walking through at the moment. Even though we see the Lord Jesus as um, somehow the burn offering here in, in John, right? We see him in control of everything. This is the, the both sides we have always together. The one is the, the eternal God and the other one is the one who um, was the, the Lamb of God and who went to the cross and n- nothing, not only a single moment, he wasn't under control about that. But here he just said it and that he just do it. Do it now. I, I know you. I know what happened. I knew uh, in verse 18, we have read, I know those who I'm chosen. I know what will happen. I, I know from the very beginning what was what will come now. And though he is 
in in this sense, he's he's really. It seems somehow he's he's forcing it a little bit because the time was not there, and so we we know everything has its its time, and it's so um, yeah. On the one hand, encouraging to see that the Lord Jesus had this meekness, this long suffering, and even there when with 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 Judas, but here at this time when Satan entered into him, just. He's, he just said, now at the time, now do it. This does not work with my uh, person together. When the Satan entered into into Judas, he had to leave the light. He had to leave uh, the light, and so he went into the night. And this is uh, what is always the case in the Bible. You, you have to accept the light, as I want to say it, or you have to leave the light. You cannot, you cannot choose something between, but the light is always there, but here, when the Satan entered into Judas, he had to go out, and it was night. So this is the characterizing of of Judas uh, for him that it was night for him. Of course, for the Lord Jesus, um, um, it is it's different, right? Because he is the light. But for Judas, this is somehow. Oh, I don't know if this is right if I say it like this, but it is a. Uh, uh, the the final um, um, the, the final judgment or for him though now the time was gone for for him so that's now he had to go and he had to fulfill that uh, what he was supposed to do like a like a point of no return for there's no going back now um, it, it's it's just beautiful here though isn't it in in John's gospel we we do see the Lord Jesus as the burnt offering. We do see him as the eternal son. But and I, I know we often say that Luke's gospel is the gospel of the Lord's humanity. But perhaps in John's gospel, we actually see the humanity of the Lord Jesus even more strongly than Luke. That perfect humanity. And so we have him here, the one who could say, I am the eternal son of God, the eternal God himself can also say I'm troubled in spirit, perfect man. And yet again, we've noticed towards the end of this paragraph in verse 27, what thou doest do quickly, the omniscient, all knowing eternal God, outworking the eternal purposes of God, using even such a wicked being as Satan in order to bring about those purposes. Wonderful thing to see here. Perfect man, the eternal God in one person. It seems just like uh, it's really the Lord was lonely here in his thoughts, in his mind. We read earlier that the Lord troubled in his heart. And here, the Lord said to the disciples very plainly, that one of you will deliver me. And he said to them, give them a sign. The one who put the morsel in his mouth is the one. And everyone saw that. And after all that, the disciples thought that the Lord gave order to Judas to buy something for, uh, for the feast. 
So no one understood what the Lord feeling, what he thought. No one was him in his mind, even in the garden. When he was, when the cup was before him, when he said, my soul is very sorrowful unto death, they were asleep. No one was sharing him his thought, his deep thought, during that hard time. The Lord is absolutely focused on the mission that he had. The disciples just didn't understand what all of these things were that were going on. And we get it, we don't get it in John's gospel when he's in the garden, the, the, um, the sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. But we do get in John's gospel, Peter cutting off the ear of the, um, you know, the high priest servant or whatever, who it was. And the Lord rebukes Peter, uh, wonderfully, tenderly, compassionately rebukes him. But he says, but put your sword away. He says, the cup which my father has given me, ought I not drink it? There's Peter trying to stop them from taking the Lord away. There's the Lord, put your sword away. This is the cup I have to drink. He knows what he's going to do. He is perfectly in control. And he's doing it because the Father has given him the cup to do it. And so not only is he the perfect man, and not only is he the burnt offering, he's actually also the offerer of the burnt offering when he's doing this. And it's a very precious thing to see. He is every aspect of the beauty and the acceptance of the burnt offering. He's the offerer, he's the offering, and he's all the pieces of it. He's the priest, he's the, uh, just we could go through those scriptures and we would see him in every single part of it because he is absolutely set on this path. The cup which my father has given me, should I not drink it? He says, go and do what you do. And the disciples didn't have a clue but it leads us on to when, therefore, he was gone out, Jesus then says, and he then says a statement which, to quote a, a commentator I once used on this, he used a word which I don't know if I can properly pronounce. He said, this is a most stupendous statement. It's one of the greatest statements we can get in Scripture. Now, is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. We just stop there. The purpose of the pathway is very clear. It's for the Lord Jesus to bring delight and glory to God. And he only reveals this after Judas has gone out and he is with his own, those who he has kept. Not one of them, he says in his prayer a bit later on, have I lost? And uh, 
he is he's just opening up here his purposes i have come the cup which my father has given me shall i not drink it up the burnt offering is very very full here i want to go back to this point the one the lord said he was troubled in his spirit and i want to link it to the uh, john 11 when he says he went uh, for verse 23 when jesus saw her weeping and the jews who came with her weeping he groaned in the spirit and was troubled so this trouble of course troubled in the spirit i think in my thinking about it, i was thinking about it it was troubled by the scene around he was the first first one in uh, with mary and the lazarus uh, uh, circumstances he saw the sin and how the sin leads the people to die the death and was troubled and the people weeping and uh, groaning uh, weeping and uh, mourning for this for the for the death and he was he knew that he's going to arise him from the dead there's no need for him to be troubled or to be groaning but he was groaning because of them because of sin doing this to the people here as well i think he's seeing judas and his fight and his end and he, i think he can see satan waiting to enter him and all these things he was troubled in the spirit of course he can see the sin what the sin do for the people leading them to death eternal death and satan waiting for them and judas as greg mentioned he's not uh, uh, going back and he was not stop his uh, his terrible sin so i think this is part of his why the lord troubled in his spirit it is marvelous to see um just the following from the point which brother donald made um they voluntarily acceptance of the lord jesus to do the work giving to him by the father um if we read verse 3 we see that um in chapter 13 jesus knowing that the father had given him all things to into his hands and in chapter 17 we read also in verse 2 as thou had given him authority of all over all flesh and the the lord knowing that the cup given to him also by the father in complete acceptance and obedience knowing that also this reference in acts 2 that he will be by the wicked hands delivered by wicked hands how love to the father and for us laboring in his heart to knowing everything knowing that the father giving him everything he know by total obedience to receive the cup from the father how wonderful the love of him to the father and to his own Perhaps we should now start to focus on the section um, beginning with verse 31, the, um, the last paragraph of the chapter.
we only have about uh, 15 minutes left. I'm not sure that we can cover that section in the 15 minutes, but um, it, it is a remarkable statement that the Lord makes here. Now is the Son of Man glorified. We, we often express in our, in our hearts and sometimes in our minds and perhaps even more rarely with our lips, a question. And that question is, what is glory? And what is glorifying? And if I can attempt a simple definition, glory is intrinsic excellence. And glorifying or glorification is the outward display of that intrinsic excellence. So the inward excellence of the Lord Jesus starts to be on display here now that Judas has gone out. As long as Judas was there amongst the 12, one there who was a son of perdition, one there who would not be kept, there was, in a sense, a cloud tarnishing the display of glory of the Lord Jesus. But now he's together with his own. He's in the circle that belongs to him. And he's in the circle where he belongs. That is in the midst of those who will be the fruit of his redemption. And that for him is a display of glory. And it's also a display of glory for God. What glory there is for God in the Lord Jesus having with him and around him those who belong to him. It's a beautiful thing. Significant too that um, Judas has left and um, as we've been reminded light is separated from darkness that when we're totally separated from the darkness of this world um, it'll come to pass what the Lord Jesus said in John 17 um, that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, that he is glorified in the midst of his own. What a beautiful thing. Um, when we're taken from here, taken from this earth, separated from the darkness that's here, and taken to be with the Lord, um, we'll behold his glory there. Um, he'll be glorified amongst his own. And it says, and God is glorified in him. So that was especially through the work at the cross of Calvary that God is glorified through um, the Lord Jesus. And I, I think we, we can even say that if no sinner would ever um, um, receive the Lord Jesus as Savior, God would have been glorified through the work of the Lord Jesus. And this is so great in itself because everything what God um, commanded or everything what God um, desired or needed to be satisfied was done by the Lord Jesus and in a perfect, complete way. So the one thing is that the Lord Jesus is glorified and the other thing is that God is glorified in him. Amen. It's... Um as, as Greg said, this is after Judas has gone out. He is now with his own. And in some ways, the, 
the teaching of what's called the teaching of the upper room starts at this point. There was the practical demonstration of uh, feet washing, but it's now the son of man is glorified. When Lazarus was sick, back in chapter 11, it says this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified by it. The Lord Jesus there as the son of God is showing, I think I've read, he's showing the power of God, the power he has over life and death. But here, it's not the son of God who's glorified. In chapter, in verse 31, chapter 13, 31, there's a wonderful symmetry, unintentional, I think, but it's there, that now is the son of man glorified. This is the Lord Jesus as the perfect, the perfect, humble man. This is the Philippians 2 son of man coming into the world, taking the form of man and being obedient unto death and that the death of the cross. This here is the one who uh, is in the midst of his own, but his own can only be with him because he has gone to the cross and he has given up to the Father the fullness of everything that the Father could ever delight in. This is a different, this is deliberately using the term, he's giving to the Father everything that the Father could delight in. As the sin offering, he could only give himself to God. But here, this is something that's intimate and close to him. The Father is there. And it says God is glorified in him. He is talking here of the closeness of his relationship with God. And we, we see here the Son of Man bringing to God his Father something which had never, ever been presented to God before. There was never a perfect human being who could ever do perfectly and completely the work and the purposes of God in every way. And here the Lord Jesus is anticipating himself doing that. And he is telling this to those who will be with him for all of eternity. And as uh, brother said in John 17, he rounds it out. He starts this, this section of teaching with the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And he ends this section of teaching at the end of John 17, that they may behold my glory. And it's almost one continuous uh, between verse 31 here and the end of chapter 17. It's one, almost one continuous discourse of the Lord to his own who he is in the midst of. It's a most precious, precious. Oh, we've got, what, four, four or five chapters of the Bible which cover, what, maybe an hour's worth of, of, of teaching. Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing revelation that we have here.
commencing here. As Greg mentioned, the glorification is the displaying all the excellences of the Lord. We can find this on the cross. And the cross he displayed, the, his obedience and his love, his excellences, was the, uh, magnified on the cross of Calvary. And also God glorified, the glorification, God's glorification there as well. All the excellences of God was there. His mercy, his grace, his uh, justice, his righteousness. All these things was magnified on the cross of Calvary. So the Son of God is glorified and the God is glorified in him. Well, it looks like we, um, we're coming towards the end of our allocated time and there's certainly no possibility of concluding these verses that close chapter 13 and that, as Donald said, introduce the stream of wonderful teaching of blessing that um, that goes through to chapter 17. So it might, might be good to, to finish at this point. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed to read these things that you went through and endured. And Lord Jesus, we speak to you now as the one who is in glory. God has glorified you. He has seated you at his right hand. And he's done this because in you, Lord Jesus, he has found everything that could ever have been given to him from a man. And you have done it to the complete and absolute perfection and satisfaction of a holy and righteous God. Our lips are just too weak, Lord Jesus, to, to be able to express how, how great these things are. And Lord Jesus, we bow before you as the one who is the, uh, the, the one who has brought to God the glory, who has shown the purposes of God to completion in every possible way. Lord Jesus, we say thank you for these scriptures. And we say thank you for all of the, um, the aspects of yourself that come out through them. And we say thank you that we can have some understanding of them. You have blessed us with a blessing which is absolutely supreme. And we can contemplate this for in many different ways, but Lord Jesus, it makes our hearts bow and worship to you. So even in these days of um, difficulty for us practically here, there are difficulties for us, but not for you. You have brought us together to contemplate you and your perfections and your person and your thoughts and your heart in every way. Lord Jesus, we say thank you that we can connect from wherever we are around the world to talk about you and we uh, give our thanks and we bring our prayers to you, Lord Jesus. In your very precious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.